This is Leave Your Mark. I'm Vince Cortez, and today's guest is Robert Kangal. Robert is a writer, speaker, and author. His articles have appeared in dozens of magazines in the New York Times Magazine, Johns Hopkins Magazine, and the Baltimore Sun. He's received dozens of awards and honors with his writing, and he's best known for his work and commitment to writing for the past 50 years. And he is our guest here today. Robert, thank you for stopping by. I'm delighted to be here. Hi there, and welcome. Now it's time for America's favorite podcast, Leave Your Mark, with your host, Vince Cortez. If it's fly, loose fit it, it's Cortez. If freeze and chubbies in it, it's Cortez. Leave Your Mark is about inspiring the world, one guess at a time. Pass the word from Brooklyn to Pittsburgh, from urban to suburb, it's Cortez, you heard? And here is our host, Vince Cortez. This is a, a truly a lifetime commitment of work. When I look at how much you've done here, this is just amazing how many books you've written and what you've written about and the depth of your topics as well. So what I'd like to do is uh, touch on where you were born and raised and how life began for you. So uh, you got you starting out in Brooklyn, New York. And your mom and dad, dad, Charles was a business owner and an entrepreneur. And your mom, Beatrice, was a homemaker and a teacher. Uh, you had a brother and a sister, Harry and Rochelle. And you grew up in New York City in a row house life in a Jewish, Italian and Irish middle class neighborhood. Um you, sounds like typical city life there where you're playing stick ball and step ball and things of this nature and you qualify to go to Stuyvesant High School in Manhattan and share with me your experience there you're attracted to science and math but I think your story about the rifle team is <laughs> rather interesting Stuyvesant was a, a a very demanding place with um really good teachers and a lot of emphasis on science and math, which I also got from my, my father. Um, but one of the things that I was doing while I was at Stuyvesant seems a little unlikely was I was a member of the rifle team where we had, um, I think there were Winchester 52s, the kind of rifle it was. And uh, we would have matches with other high schools in the New York area where we would actually take our rifles in these big vinyl bags and uh, get onto the subways to go to whatever school we were having a match with. And um, now it seems ludicrous to think that there I was with um, these rifles and they were in a bag, um, but even so it seems a little weird, but I considered it a, a sport. Your target was uh, probably about the size of a silver dollar. Oh my. And the bullseye was probably the size of a pencil eraser. Uh, and you were shooting at that at about at 50 foot distance. Now, the um, Syverson, I think, is interesting also being that it's an all boys school. And you said now in this modern era, it's not. So for boys, uh, that it's a formidable window from age 13 to 16. So um, you're kind of developing more into what our interests in life would be. So. Share with me in, in the window of coming through there and graduating where your mindset was and then where you decided to go. Yeah, I, I think at home, I was getting, you know, some people, when they talk about their parents, they say, oh, I'm more like my dad. 
or they'll say, oh, I'm really more like my mom. And I don't think that way. I think I'm about evenly split between my mom and my father. And my father was more interested in science and math. And I picked that up and I love that and still do. And my mother was uh, an English major at Brooklyn College and was always talking. She was a, a little bit of a melodramatic person. Uh, she liked poetry. She liked fiction. We were always talking about words at home. And so I grew up in an atmosphere that valued equally, I would say, the sciences and mathematics on the one hand and expressing yourself through language, which was, um, in retrospect, a happy place to be. I didn't turn my back on either of them. I think I, in some ways, I embraced them both. I think it sounds like you did. Um, now, you go off after high school <clears throat> in Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Rensselaer, yeah. Rensselaer. And you get a BS in uh, mechanical engineering. Mm -hmm. But what I find interesting is, is that that plays out as short-lived. Because three years later, uh, you decide to become a freelance writer. What happened after getting your degree? In well, a lot happened. <laughs> a lot happened. Um, you said that I decided to become a freelance writer. And I'll get to that in a minute. I wouldn't say that I decided to become a freelance writer. I just became a freelance writer without deciding to. Basically, what happened is I got out of school. I mentioned that I was on the rifle team in high school. And I was interested in guns. My my uncle George came back from World War II, and um, he had a whole uh, cabinet, a gun cabinet, in his little um, uh, man nook. Um, and there were a lot of rifles there, and I got an interest, an early interest in that. And when I got out of school, out of Rensselaer, uh, I got a job in the armaments industry in a, in, for a company that actually designed rifles and other kinds of weapons. And not only weapons, but bullets, the special kinds of bullets that are used in modern war. Um, and my job, as sort of creepy as it is to say now, was to help in the design of this kind of ammunition. And I did that for about a year. Um, and then I went to another company where I was doing something a little more benign, which is I was working on, um, maybe your car has this automatic speed control. Okay. Where you press a button and maintains the speed. And that was part of my job. And there was something called automatic temperature control. This is the very early days of electronics in cars in the uh, very early 70s, before they had anything. They had radios and that's about all. Mm. Um, and so I did that. And in the meantime, my ideas were changing very radically because of the war. The Vietnam was going on, Vietnam War was going on. And I think I went into my initial job with the in the armaments industry, oblivious of that. But it didn't take long within the atmosphere of that time to be aware of this cruel, terrible war that was going on in Vietnam. And by 1967, I my attitudes toward the war had changed enough that I went on the march in the Pentagon where hundreds of thousands of people descended on the Pentagon. There were armed soldiers there. 
protecting the Pentagon from us, and we were protesting the war. And after that experience, I came away and quit my job and um, left that industry. In the meantime, I fell in love, you know, which changes everything. And oh, yeah. I fell in love with a woman who was a graduate student in uh, the sciences. And at one point, I left my work and I followed her to Europe. And then when I came back to Baltimore in 1970, for a couple of months, I didn't know what I was doing. But I had these ideas about what was going on in the world, about how people in my generation like couldn't talk. Now, this wasn't true of me, but it was very often true of my friends and many young people where we couldn't talk to our parents. It's like we inhabited two different worlds. We're using two different kinds of language. And our parents were all caught up in the what they had gone through in the Depression. And we were all caught up in what we were going through in the war. We couldn't talk to each other. And I went up to um, an underground newspaper in Baltimore with the unlikely name of Harry. That was its name, same name as my brother. It was called Harry. And I said, hey, look, I talked to the editor. I said, oh, look, I got these ideas about what are going, what's going on in, the, in this country. I'm going to write about them. Give me a chance. And the guy said yes. And I wrote these uh, three terribly written essays about uh, what I thought was going on. But it was a chance to express myself. And um, that's why I say I didn't decide to become a writer. I just wrote. I wrote these articles. And then after that, I started going, looking for other places that might be interested in my work. And one thing led to another. It was very slow. Uh, there was very little money in it. And only gradually was I able to get into a position where I could make a living from it. It's very interesting. So the emotion of the anger just slid you right into writing. Exactly. Um, the idea then of... How far along was that Vietnam War? I mean, with you coming out of high school at 18, did you have to enter a draft? Or was that right on the cusp of the end of it? Well, I came, no, it was still it was still going on. I was, I graduated from uh, age 16, actually. And the jobs that I had gave me what was called an occupational deferment. So I didn't have to worry about the draft because I was, in the eyes of the draft board, contributing to the defense of the country by having this job by having these jobs. But when I gave up those jobs, I lost those deferments. And then I worried a lot about what was going to happen. So, wow, yeah, and the and, war ended shortly then. Thereafter. The war ended, I guess, around 75. But what came first, I don't know if you remember, was something called the lottery, where, okay, my birth date is May 28th. And every birth date had associated with it a number. And it was like, you know, you go to a bingo hall and they call your number and they arranged for people to be drafted, which usually meant going off to Vietnam or often meant going off to Vietnam, according to your birthday. And fortunately, I lucked out with a very low number, a very high number, I should say, 308. You never forget your, your draft board number. I got a 308 and that basically freed me from worry about the about being drafted wow now th this actually in a historical part for the united states vietnam is a turning point 
where we really enter into the modern era because, um, you know, you came in there where uh, the television became prominent and in the 60s there then with King and and, uh, President Kennedy getting shot. So like there was an upheaval and an unrest in the American culture at this point. So how how the dust was going to settle, this was extremely tumultuous. And, and for a young man your age at that time, uh, knowing that it, it it was not necessarily a war we should have been in, the political side of the whole thing had to just twist you. So I would it, argue much more strongly, it wasn't simply a question of a war we shouldn't be in. I felt, and many people my age felt, and I still feel that it was a, a, a cruel war and an immoral war, and that we had no business being there. And thousands, of, hundreds of thousands of people died for a war that should never have been fought. Yeah. I don't want to reconstruct the politics of the <laughs> yeah. time. Well, the, yeah, the, the, <laughs> Vietnam, the Vietnam story will live on forever in American history. Yeah. So now you, you, you're compelled to write. So at this point, would you, how, would you titled yourself a journalist or are you an, like an editorial type writing or documentary? Like I would, would, so you, you go. No, neither of those. I guess I would, I would, call myself a freelance writer. Okay. Uh, and in fact, at the beginning, I was sort of embarrassed to call myself a writer. When people asked me, oh, what do you do? I would simply say what I did. I would use the verb. I write articles. I write essays. I write book reviews. But I would never actually call myself a writer. That came only much later after I had been doing it for years and years and was writing books. Connect with us on LinkedIn. Be our friend on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You are listening to to Vince Cortez. We just want you to leave your mark. All right, now when does your journey of being a bi-coastal person, because didn't you go to Europe in there too when you were going from Baltimore to San Francisco? So what what Well, San Francisco came a little later. Okay. Uh, in in the middle of this period in 1969, I met a woman who very much influenced me. Who in the book, Young Man Muddled, uh, I gave the name Mora, and she had a tremendous influence on me. And I fell madly in love with her. And when she went to Europe to be with her thesis advisor, I went too. And um, then it was after that that we moved back to Baltimore together. And then later she got a postdoc in California and I went with her. Unfortunately, at that point, we split up. But that left me on the West Coast where I lived for the next four years. Now, how, how did you like living in San Francisco being from the East Coast? Well, I thought it was a little strange. Uh, San Francisco itself was beautiful, just gorgeous. And I love the fog. I remember uh, after I had broken up with uh, the person I call Mora, um, my first night in a, the apartment that I got, I remember just lying in bed, feeling miserable and listening to the fog horns. Um, I'm not going to try to imitate it, <laughs> <laughs> but it has a really mournful sound. The fog horns were to alert shipping who couldn't, they couldn't see anything because uh-huh. the fog was so thick. So the foghorns alerted shipping in the bay 
and together they made for a kind of cacophony of sound that had a kind of a mournful quality. And I, I remember that very clearly that first couple of nights. Now, San Francisco was probably a really hotbed, especially for opinion on that war. And it's still being sure. relatively fresh. So you got a, probably a different scope on that entirely from being in the Baltimore, then in Europe, then over to there. It was like kind of like, I'm sure that was quite dramatic. Well, San Francisco is still, let's say, recovering from the summer of love. I think this, which is the term that the press gave, I guess it was 1968 or 1969 or 1970 to San Francisco when anybody who was pretending or was a hippie and had long hair and smoked dope and was against the war and dressed in, in a characteristic way all descended on San Francisco into the Haight-Ashbury and uh it was the press that that dubbed it the summer of love. Wow. I got there a couple of years later, and there was a lot of there was still plenty of people smoking dope, and still, <laughs> still uh, a lot of opportunities to you know still lots of young people who were doing crazy things or not so crazy things, and a very very strong as you might imagine anti-war movement. Now. After this time, then, so we're moving towards, let's see, your first published book in 1986. And it's The Apprentice to Genius, The Making of a Scientific Dynasty. Share with me your first writing. That's always the most exciting one because you're official being published. Well, um, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. Because you asked me about San Francisco, and I'll tell you that okay. what I was doing in San Francisco for the four years that I was doing doing it when I was living there, I was working on a book that never got published, where I basically got obsessed by it. And it was a book about cities and city living. It was influenced by my New York experiences, by Paris, now by San Francisco. And I decided the whole world had turned against cities and people were saying how can anybody live in a city they're they're ugly and they're crime ridden and they're dirty and this and that they're falling apart and i didn't share that view i thought cities were great places to live and i got it into my head with a complete lack of wisdom or balance or intelligence that i was going to write a book about cities and even though i really didn't have the money to support myself I went ahead and did that and made myself a little crazy. And it never got published. It was a complete failure. And But then I returned to Baltimore, returned to my previous freelancing career, vowing, I should tell you, that I would never write a book again. Mm. Nonetheless, um, the book that you just meant, mentioned, Apprentice to Genius, The Making of a Scientific Dynasty, that was the product of an article that I had written first about mentor relationships. You know, like um, if you're um, an electrician, very often you get to be an electrician by working for other electricians. If you're in various other fields, you are mentored by a senior person to not just in the in the practicalities of the work, but in the ins and outs and the nuances of it. And that's true in science also. 
So what my book was about was about mentor relationships in science, how young scientists would go to work in the labs of senior scientists and come away with a sort of a, a taste, a feeling in the gut for how to do advanced elite science. That's what my book was about. I followed mm. five generations of a single mentor chain, each of whom influenced the next. That's a powerful uh, category of writing as well as your influence there. Um, you you have the engineering and the, the scientific measuring and then the teaching uh, aspect of it. So you go on from 86, so you don't publish any books and you decide you're not going to. So um, what happens then in 1991? Because from 91 to 2007, you seem to start <laughs> yeah. publishing books Absolutely. like it wasn't yeah. any problem at all. Right. What what changed was the writing of the first, well, you can call it the first, but you can call it the second. The second book I wrote for the first book that was published, that was Apprentice to Genius. And that didn't set the world on fire, but it did okay. And it got some nice reviews. And then in 1991 came The Man Who Knew Infinity. That was a book that was actually the idea of an editor at um, I, where was she at? At Crown, I think I, at the time. I'm not sure. I think she went to Scribner's, but it was her idea. She had come across this little mention in the newspaper about the hundredth anniversary of an unknown Indian mathematician named Ramanujan, who had had a big influence on mathematics. He grew up in India, hopelessly poor, didn't have any colleagues but just learn mathematics on his own. It was like this rags to intellectual riches story. And it was her idea, what if somebody wrote a book about a biography of this man? And I looked into it and oh, and she approached my agent and my agent approached me. And my first reaction is, who's gonna read a book about an Indian mathematician, right? But nonetheless, I got really interested in this. And, um, after a while, I prepared a book proposal, which is how you sell books, nonfiction books. And it worked out. Um, it uh, was published. It went through many printings. It's been translated into about 15 or 18 different languages. Oh, my. Uh, it's been all over the world. Then later, they made a film about it uh, with the same name, The Man Who Knew Infinity, uh, with uh, Dev Patel playing Ramanujan. And Jeremy Irons playing um, the, the other main character in the story is named G.H. Hardy, who's the English mathematician with whom Ramanujan works. And they make this sort of dynamic duo. And so they're the stars of the book and the stars of the movie. Well, and, and the name of the movie is the same as the book? Well, it's the same idea. You know, it's a distillation uh -oh. of the book. Okay. So well, what's they, the title of the movie? Uh, same, The Man Who okay. Knew Infinity. Okay. No, that's exciting. So it was very um, exciting. But the movie didn't come for years and years and years later. It came in uh, 2016. Okay. And the book came out in 1991. So that's like 25 years later. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Somebody, somebody saw the storyline and had to do it all that's these right. years that's later. That's exactly right. 
If you are listening from Australia, Florida, or just from around the corner. From East Coast to West Coast outlets, if you're not to the dirty South straight, make a left body body. Contact us. Leave your mark with your host, Vince Cortez. Well, I think now I want to touch on because we, we brushed over there. In 1999, you're the professor of science writing at MIT, graduate program. And I mean, MIT holds an enormous reputation. So when you go in there and you're teaching um, the science of writing, you're pretty seasoned at this point, but you're also showing your mother's influence again with the the teaching and the English influence. So share with me how you put your course together. Okay, well, I'll, I'll tell you what it was all about. First of all, it wasn't the science of writing. It was science writing, which means... Oh, about science. It's writing about science for the rest of us. In other words, scientists always write journal articles and books that nobody can understand that are written for other people in their field. Science writing is writing about difficult subjects for the rest of us so that we have a chance of understanding in popular magazines and newspapers and in books. And by then I had done a lot of that. And um, so I and another uh, faculty member at MIT started what was called the Graduate Program in Science Writing. And it was a very select program where we admitted seven or eight young um, writers each year and put them through uh, the mill for a year, uh, uh, trying to teach them and encourage them and inspire them to write about difficult subjects. The more difficult, the better. The more arcane, mm. the more obscure, the better. And the idea is to be able to talk about them, to take these difficult concepts, these hard-won ideas, and make them palatable and reachable for and, and understandable for ordinary readers. And so that's what I did there for about 11 years. That That's very exciting when you're in there. And I'm sure, like, MIT's a bit of a think tank, so I'm sure that the stories that they were uh, writing about were very interesting. The intellectual mind usually has a tendency to be a bit sharper in its opinion, especially on controversial products. So uh, I think that that would have probably been a very good time for you in the front of the room with students writing for you. Now with a career of writing and, and what you've done, where do your future interests lie? What do you see yourself doing moving forward here? Well, I'm actually working or have worked on a sequel to the um, the book that um, we're here to talk about a little bit about, Young Man Muddled. Um, the, this other book is going to be sort of a sequel to it based in San Francisco and about the sort of debacle that I went through with trying to write that book about cities. Uh, but what I've been working on since in the last eight months is a new book for Simon & Schuster called um, The Antioch Mosaics. And it's about, again, it's another example of an obscure subject that I hope to make accessible and interesting to my readers. Um, in the 1930s, a group of Princeton University archaeologists went to Antioch 
Turkey, what is now Turkey, which was one of the great capitals of the ancient world, along with Rome and Constantinople, and um, is sort of basically buried underground. And they did an excavation of, the, of Antioch, where they went in expecting to find these palaces and um, hippodromes and baths and everything like that, and found very little of that, but instead found mosaics, hundreds and hundreds of absolutely beautiful mosaics showing with mythological subjects or household domestic subjects, gods and goddesses, Dionysus getting drunk, um, <laughs> all sorts of wild, beautiful things. And so my book is about this excavation and how they discovered these mosaics and what happened to the mosaics after they were distributed. Now they're in museums all over the world. So that's the book that I'm going to be working on for the next year and a half. As a writer, what is your most favorite part of your work? Well, I like the research and the writing equally but certain parts of the research and certain parts of the writing. When in the research, when you're very often, you feel lost and confused and you don't know where you're going and you don't know what's important yet. And you're sort of following your nose and you're, you sometimes stumble on unexpected discoveries, unexpected finds in archives. And all of a sudden, bingo, it's like all of a sudden you have this light that's shed on your subject in a different way that you didn't appreciate. So that's one. And then the other big moment I'd say is along in the writing, you know, you write a first draft and then you write draft after draft after draft. And once again, you're kind of feeling lost and confused and you don't know what you're doing. And you look at your own work and you say, this is drek, this is terrible. <laughs> and you feel miserable about yourself. But if you work through that, you get to a point where once again, there's a kind of, a kind of clarity descends on this muck that you've been <laughs> trying to work your way through. And all of a sudden, or not so all of a sudden, but gradually you see it and it's, it can seem beautiful at that point where all the, what had been confused becomes clear and you feel very thankful and very happy. I like that. That's very fulfilling. How would you say that your writing has changed the views in your life? In hundreds of ways, but I can tell you one. We were talking before about um, Apprentice to Genius, my first book, the one about the mentors. And one of those mentors had a saying um, where basically the idea is a young scientist can come into a lab and think, oh, well, I've really got to do a lot of preparation for this. I got to go to the library. I got to study. I got to do this. I got to do that before I can do a great experiment. And this scientist's wisdom was to say, look, yeah, you need to do some preparatory work. But basically, forget it. Just get hysterical and do it. And um, that motto or dictum, just get hysterical and do it, has stood with me for, mm -hmm. I guess, 40 years now as a way of sometimes getting 
out of my own way and just saying, okay, enough of this. I'm getting lost in it. I just need to get hysterical and go off in another direction. So that would be one example. What would you say is the best compliment you received about your work? That I would never believe that I could be so interested in X or Y or Z, but your book did that for me. If you had a billboard for the students at MIT, what would you have put on that? Well, that's a great question. I have to think about that. Um, I'd say listen to others, but also listen to yourself. If you If it's just one or the other, if you're just listening to others and other people's opinions and um, what they have to say about your work, about what you're doing, you'll just be battered around. You'll just get slammed around by people and you won't know whether you're coming or going. And on the other hand, if you think, oh, I'm such a big shot, I'm so smart, I'll just listen to myself, I'll ignore what everybody else has to say, then that's another way of getting really hopelessly lost because you're you're not as smart as you think you are, believe me. And you have a lot to learn from other people. And this balance of listening to yourself and listening to others is, I think, crucial. We all have to learn it in different ways. Nice balance. If you have a story to share, tell us. How are you going to leave your mark? Leave your mark. Contact us. Leave your mark with our host, Vince Cortez. Be our guest. You've led me to the point in the interview where how would you like to leave your mark? How would you like to be remembered for your life's work? In my imagination, I would like to think of thousands or tens of thousands of people who have read my books and who have had through those books, the kinds of experiences that I had when I was young in that little house in Brooklyn, reading and first coming under the spell of, of literature for the first time and loving to read and hoping that people today, nowadays who had read my books would have something like the same pleasure that I had when I was a kid. I like that, the power of influence. Yeah. That's great stuff. I want to thank you for coming by today. You have just such a plethora of knowledge and, and writing and reading is an amazing tool to just uh, help our minds develop and, and become the, the, the creations we're intended to be. And I think you've touched on all of that. Um, I do want to ask you, um, based on how you said you came into writing, you didn't make the decision. You just did it. Yeah. Um, can, can you explain to me, do you, your, your career sort of chose you and, and <laughs> through your influences. So, I mean, what point on that, did you really feel like you were going to, it was just something you were just thinking you were to do then, or did you realize you were going to do it your whole life? Well, I think about six months or a year after I started dabbling in writing and I got some sort of a silly book on how to become a freelance writer or something like that, the thought came to me for the first time, oh, it's possible to do this for a living. You can make a living at it. You can get by, maybe. It's possible. I'm going to try that. I'm going to do that. That probably came about a year after I first started dabbling. That's a and, strong, strong, yeah, intuitive it, voice. Yeah, yeah. 
That's awesome. Well, I want to thank you for coming by and sharing your story with me. There's plenty to be learned from what your experience was, both personally and professionally. So you you had a window of time in American history you came through. It was extremely interesting in so many different ways. Really? And controversial. So uh, I want to thank you again for coming by. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Before I let you go, I want to give you the opportunity to share with me where we can find your information. Well, uh, I'm not sure it's information in an abstract way, but um, my last book was very different from all the books that I wrote before. All my other books were focused on somebody else doing some doing interesting things. And uh, they were either biographical or they went to a, an exotic place. For the first time, I've written a book that swings the camera around toward me. And I've written a book about um, my first three or four or five years in Baltimore after I got out of college. And it's called Young Man Muddled, as in confused, which is certainly the way I was then <laughs> when I was just sort of muddling along. And um, that's what this book is about. My first you know, work love affairs, you know, falling in love, what, what that means for, for you when you're young. And the book is called Young Man Muddled, and it's published by Bancroft Press, Los Angeles. Okay, and your website address? Uh, RobertCanigal.com. Excellent. All right, well, we know where to find you now. Okay. And once again, thanks for coming by. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Leave Your Mark today. Tune into our next episode of Leave Your Mark with Vince Cortez. Be blessed. You just left your mark. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Listen to more episodes on demand. Just click Leave Your Mark with Vince Cortez. <laughs>